0: Well, Aaron Ralston uh, was a very ambitious and driven person. At one point uh, in the early 2000s, his goal was to climb all of the mountains in Colorado that had 14,000-foot peaks. There's over 50 of them. He wanted to climb all of those solo by himself in the winter. And in his estimation, he says those mountains have some of the most dangerous snowpack in the entire world. It's very prone to avalanches which meant that Aaron Ralston would often get up and start climbing uh, around midnight in the middle of the night and would climb by himself solo until the wee hours of the morning in an attempt to conquer all of these 14,000-foot peaks. Well, in the spring of of 2003, uh, Aaron Ralston's window to finish his goal had had come to a close. With the arrival of spring, uh, he couldn't meet his goal of climbing them in winter, and so he decided to take a little break from his uh, expedition To climb those mountains. And he wanted to to just take some time and and to rest. And so he headed out to Moab, Utah, and decided that he would spend a few days just doing some mountain biking and doing some day hikes here and there, something much more low-key. Now for Aaron, an experienced mountaineer, uh, this day hike and mountain biking thing was going to be pretty simple. So he headed out to Utah and he didn't tell his family where he was going. He he didn't leave a a note or a plan with anyone. He, He just headed out there. And so on one day in particular, in April of 2003, he did some mountain biking for a couple of hours and and put his bike back in his truck and uh, decided to do a day hike and just explore some of the the canyons that are in the area surrounding Moab, Utah. And so he took a little bit of water, a little bit of food, and he set out on what he thought was going to be just a, a few hours of hiking. And he came across what's called a slot canyon, just a real narrow canyon and he decided he would climb to the bottom and explore this canyon for himself. And so Aaron Ralston began to, to kind of shimmy down the canyon wall. And as he was climbing down, he dislodged a boulder. And he fell, and the boulder fell. And as he was falling, this boulder wedged his arm against the canyon wall. So now he's got this boulder that they estimate was around 800 pounds that has crushed his hand against the canyon wall, and he's stuck. And he knows he's got limited food. He knows he's got limited water. And he didn't bother to tell anyone where he was going. No one knows where he's at. He would be stuck for a little over five days with his hand wedged in between that boulder and the rock face. His legs got tired because he, he had come to standing So he rigged up a little seat that he could, uh, some rope that he could kind of sit on, but he said that would cut off the circulation in his legs, and so for five days, he would sit and stand in 20-minute intervals just to give his legs some rest. Finally, Aaron realized that the boulder cutting off all circulation to his arm, uh, the flesh was beginning to die because it didn't have any blood flow. His food had run out, his water had run out, and Aaron Ralston knew that if he didn't find a way to get out of this canyon, he, he would die there. And so he did what is even hard to imagine. He broke the bones in his arm. And all he had with him was a, a little multi-tool, a, a cheap little pocket knife that his mom had given him. And he used a, a relatively dull blade on that pocket knife. And he cut through the tissues, the tendons, the muscles in his arm, amputating his own arm. He managed to then climb out of the canyon and finally stumbled across some other hikers who, who managed to get him help. And they brought in a helicopter and flew him out. And Aaron Ralston survived but barely. But he had this to say about the experience. He says, I couldn't get mad at that boulder. The boulder did what it was there to do. Boulders fall. That's their nature. But he says, you did this, Aaron. You chose to come here today. You chose to do this canyon by yourself. You chose not to tell anyone where you were going. Last week, Pastor Steve talked about how we were at the trailhead, the beginning of our our Family Matters series. This week, we're, we're going to launch into that journey as we talk about community. And, and the thing that I want to open with today is this. We are called to do life together with other people. We are called to a life of intentional community. And I think that it's actually dangerous to do our life journey alone. That, that was Aaron Ralston's thing, uh, thing. He thought this day hike would be no big deal. So he didn't tell anyone where he was going. He thought, I'll just do this thing on my own. But I think sometimes, just like Aaron Ralston was in, in his day hike, I think we're tempted to try to do life on our own. We're used to being self-sufficient. We're used to being somewhat individualistic. And so when we talk about community, I want to suggest that it's dangerous to do our life journey alone, that we need community. We need other people. Now, here's part of what I wrestled with this week as, we talk, uh, as I prepared to talk about community. I sometimes feel like talking about community in church is sort of like talking about diet and exercise. We, we know we should do it, but we just don't want to do it. I, I can think of at least twice in the last year and a half, two years, that I've preached on community uh, myself, not to mention the times that Pastor Steve has talked about it. And I feel like it's one of those things that, that we know we should do, but, but we just don't engage in community oftentimes. And I, I think there's a couple reasons that we sometimes resist community. I think the first reason is that community is, is just hard. To do life intentionally with other people, uh, we think it should come naturally, but oftentimes we try to do life intentionally in relationship with other people, and we encounter difficulties. Why? I think because we're all broken people. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. If you read Genesis 3, we see that the effect of sin results in a broken relationship with God and ultimately a broken relationship with one another. And so community is hard. It's not convenient. It takes time and intentionality and energy to invest our lives in in meaningful relationship with other people. And, And the reality is that often in community, we've been wounded by other people who are themselves broken. And so sometimes we resist community because we've been hurt in community by other people and so we want to draw back and come to a safe place where no one really knows my my faults and flaws. I I think the second reason that we sometimes resist community is that we live in a culture that is in a lot of ways counter-community. We live in a culture that I think by its nature is, is pretty individualistic. You know, in America, this is the place where you can come and, and you can pull yourself up, by your bootstraps, by yourself. You don't need anyone else. And, and sometimes it seems to be almost a commonly accepted value in our culture that to need help is to admit weakness, and we, we want to appear competent. I, I think additionally, I think our culture functions with a sort of competitive mindset. We see ourselves in competition with other people. I think Solomon uh, observes this well in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I want to look at this as Solomon begins to describe a culture that is based on sort of a a competitive uh, pitting of myself against other people. Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 4. He says, again I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who's never been born, who does not see the evil that's done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Solomon is often thought to be one of the wisest men who's ever lived. And Ecclesiastes, is, is Solomon sort of wrestling with the things that he observed in the, in the world around him that don't seem to make sense? Now, if you read Ecclesiastes all the way to the end, uh, Solomon will come back to this place of saying what really matters is fearing God and honoring his command. But to get to that point, Solomon walks through a series of sobering observations about the culture and the world around him. And one of the things he notices is he says, I look around me and I see that, that there's people who oppress one another. And biblically, this idea of oppression often centers around one person or a group of people who take advantage of another person or another group of people for their own economic gain. Oppression, biblically, is often tied to this idea of, I'm going to step on the the heads of people around me as I climb the corporate ladder of success. And and Solomon makes this explicit in verse 4. He says, I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. And so I think often our culture is counter-community because we live in sort of a, a competitive mindset where we're, we're, we're uh, in constant competition with the people around us. And we function furthermore with a sort of scarcity mentality that there's only so much success to go around. And, and if that person succeeds, it diminishes my opportunity to succeed. And, and so imagine a, a place of, of work where there's, there's one opportunity for someone to be promoted to management. Now everybody's vying for that job and sometimes we think, I wonder how I could throw the people around me under the bus so maybe I can look good for that promotion. Maybe I'll sort of undercut them in a meeting or, or maybe I'll, I notice a mistake in a project that they present, but I'm not going to bring it up until I know it's going to hurt, you know, in a big corporate meeting or something. And, and I think there's times and places where we're tempted to live in competitive opposition to people around us. No, you could say, okay, okay pastor, this is, it's a little bit of hyperbole. Nobody in here is oppressing anyone. But I think we still often function with this mindset of competitiveness. Here's a little heart check exercise I want you to do. I want you to just ask yourself this simple question. How often do you freely and willingly celebrate the successes of other people around you? When you're at work and, you, and your coworker gets promoted instead of you, can you celebrate that success with them, or do you walk away going, "Why did they get promoted? They're lazy and they're gossipy, and, and we start to care, tear down their character? Can, can we really enter and celebrate well the success of other people, even if that means that we ourselves didn't get that promotion? I think we resist community for those couple of reasons. It's hard. We're broken. I think we resist community sometimes because we live and and are influenced by a culture that in a lot of ways is counter-community. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, as Solomon continues writing, he wants to make this point that, that community is really important. And as Solomon describes community, for him, it's not just about living in relationship. For Solomon, living in community is about a new way of living and being in the world. It's this shift from a competitive mindset that would see us oppress one another, that's driven by envy. It's a move towards a cooperative mindset where we see ourselves doing life intentionally with other people, not in competition against. So Solomon wants us to see the world in a drastically different light, not in competition and envy with others, but in a way that says, how can we urge each other on? How can we encourage the well-being of each other? So as we talk about community this morning, I want to look at it through the lens of three questions. What is community? Why should we want to live in community? And how do we actually do it? What are core elements of what it means to live in community? So what is community? How does Solomon define it? Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. He says, Again I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone, and he had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Two are better than one, Solomon says, because they have a good return for their labor. And he's not just talking economically. He's not saying, go get a business partner because you'll make more money. No, part of what Solomon is trying to say here, he says, two are better than one. And he begins in the preceding passages, then he'll, he'll define this for us in greater detail. So what is community? I want to argue this morning, based on Solomon's writing, that community is about a shared mission and an intentional presence in the life of another. It's a shared mission and an intentional presence in the life of another. Notice what Solomon says. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. This is a shared endeavor. It's two people coming together and saying, we are about the same thing. Our life is headed in the same trajectory. Let's be intentionally present with one another. I think sometimes we think of community simply as the people that we're in proximity with. But take a look at this video. So this is a a clip of just a a busy, crowded street. Now, there's a lot of people there in close proximity, right? They're kind of packed shoulder to shoulder as everyone kind of goes about their business. But I don't think we would look at this and say, oh, these people are living in intentional community with one another. They're in close proximity, spatially, but no one is intentionally present with one another. Here's what I want to suggest this morning is that community is not just about physical proximity, it's about intentionally being present in the life of another person. Community is not just about being proximally close to another person, it's about being intentionally aware of and present in their life in a meaningful way. So why, why would we want to live in community? Community? I think Solomon in this passage presents us with some compelling arguments for why we should want to live in community. In verse 9, Solomon simply says this. He says, two are better than one. And so here, here's my first reason why I think uh, we should want to live in community, is that we're simply better together. We do life better when we do life in community and in relationship with other people. I, I love when, when science affirms what Scripture teaches. There was a 75-year-long Harvard study with 600 participants. And what they did was they took brain scans periodically throughout the 75 years. They administered self-evaluation questionnaires. And it was all centered around this question of how do relationships impact the physical, emotional, overall well-being of people's lives. And the Harvard researcher said this. He says, the clearest message we get from this 75-year study is this good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. And what they found was, is that having someone to lean on, having people that you're doing life in relationship with, it keeps brain function high, and it actually reduces emotional and even physical pain. They also found that people who tended to be lonely, they worried more and often actually died younger. So at the end of this study, one Harvard researcher said, what we realize is it's not just the number of friends. It's not that you have 80 or 100 friends. He says, and it's not even whether or not you're in a committed relationship, dating or married. He says, the difference maker is the quality of the close relationships that you have. And I I love that this affirms what, what Solomon is saying. He says, two are better than one. And the reality is that we do life better. We are physically, literally healthier doing life in relationship and in intentional community with other people. But part of what this means is that we have to shift from a competition mindset to a a cooperative mindset that sees us on mission together, doing life together, because we're better together. And I I think it's hard to get rid of that competitive mindset. I I, I find myself even at times lapsing back into this sort of competitive mode of functioning. I I see this even in my marriage. My my wife and I, we have have three kids. We have a a three-year-old. We have a two-year-old, and we have a 10-month-old, and they're that far apart because we're crazy. So in in our house, it's it's nonstop energy. I mean, it it is movement all the time. And just a couple weeks ago, my wife Lauren and I, we had this conversation about this sort of uh, thing that had crept up in our marriage, and it was this sort of competitive mindset where we were keeping score with one another. And what this looked like is, is we would wake up in the morning, and we would have this conversation, you know, I'm wiping the sleep from my eyes, and I would... I'd sort of ask or say, oh, man, I, whew, I got up four times with the kids last night. How, how many times did you get up? Now, he, he, here's the trick. If she answers less than four, the unwritten rule is it's her turn to get up more tonight. Right? That's how this works. And so we would have this conversation. And, and if she only got up a couple times, then towards uh, bedtime that evening, I'd say, well, maybe I could sleep in a little bit. Because I had this sort of, and she had this sort of tally system going of of who got up how many times and what that meant about who gets up that night. And it was this sort of subtle way of keeping score and having a tally going of who was doing what. Or or another instance of this for me was, um, I I got home from work early one day and I thought, you know, I'm going to clean the kitchen. Um, We leave in the morning with three kids to go to daycare and it's like a race to get out of the door. So the kitchen is usually a disaster. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to clean it. I'll empty the dishwasher, and, and it'll be great. So I, I worked for probably an hour, and the kitchen looked great. Well, at least it was man clean. I thought it looked good, right? So my wife gets home, and I'm like, she's going to love this. She's going to say thank you and just be amazed. And so she walks in the door, and she's got three or four bags from daycare and her bag for work, and the kids burst in the door. And we go about the evening routine, and, and she didn't say anything. And me being the mature, well-adjusted man that I am, I thought, how dare she? I came home from work early. I poured, I poured hours of time, an hour of time, in, into making the kitchen clean. And she didn't even say thank you. And, and what I realized is what that said about my mindset is, is that this is really her job, it's her responsibility, but I'll sort of do it as a favor, but you owe me a thank you, right? And it was sort of this competitive mindset and competitive way of functioning in marriage that said, that's your thing, but I'll do it as long as you say thank you. And and it's so easy to lapse back into that sort of competitive mindset of scorekeeping and tallying and who's doing what and how much and who should do more. But the shift has to be that it's not my wife and I are keeping score, but it's the shared responsibility of the well-being of our family is our responsibility together. One writer says it this way. They said, scorekeeping has no place in your marriage. The best thing you can do for yourself and for each other is to say thank you and I love you as much as possible. Be grateful. Be appreciative. Offer each other grace upon grace upon grace because you've never needed it this much. It's a shift from a competitive mindset to a cooperative mindset. We are on mission together. And and I think we do this in a variety of other ways in friendships. How many times do we keep score of, well, I've initiated hanging out with this person three times, And they haven't. I've paid for lunch twice. They haven't paid for lunch at all. And we sort of have this tally system going. The kind of community that Solomon is calling us to is the kind of relationships where there is no score to keep, but we're simply doing life together concerned about one another's well-being. It's a fundamentally different way of seeing the world than how our culture might train us to want to engage. So why community? Because we are better together. As we make that shift from a competitive to a cooperative mindset. Why community? I think community brings deep meaning and purpose to the lives that we're leading. Notice what Solomon says. He, he pictures this man in verse, uh, chapter or verse 8. He says, There's a man all alone. And the Hebrew text literally reads: there is no second person. He's by himself. But as you read the text, we see that this man has considerable wealth. And it says that his eyes are not content with what he has. He desires even more. This is someone who's got it all. But he has no one to share it with. We're told he doesn't even have a son or a brother. And the idea being that if he had a son or brother, at least they would inherit his wealth. He doesn't even have that. No one will even inherit his wealth. All of his success is meaningless. There's no one to share it with. And Solomon, he uses this phrase. He says, this is a miserable business. And what we begin to see is that success without someone is meaningless. Because life is not about the acquisition of things and stuff. It's not about the acquisition of success. At the very core of who we are, we are designed and created as relational people. So life, the scorecard of life, is not the bank account, and it's not the the boat, and it's not the, the summer cottage. It's not those things. It's about the impact and influence that we have on the lives of other people and the impact and influence that they have on our lives. And community, life, and intentional relationship with other people brings a deep sense of meaning and purpose to our existence because it's fundamental to how God has designed and created us. And I think it's an interesting uh, interpretational difference in in, in the NIV translation of this. In verse 8, we're told that this man had no end to his toil, and he asked the question, for whom am I toiling? And when I think of toil, I think of tedious, meaningless work. He's, just, he's toiling, he's going about it, doesn't enjoy it. What I think is interesting is that as Solomon writes, he says two are better than one because they have a better return not for their toil but for their labor. And in this shared endeavor together, in community, this thing that they're about takes on added meaning and purpose and significance. Because it's not about the success, it's about the relationship and the way that we're doing life intentionally with people. So why community? Because we're better together, because relationship brings meaning and purpose, but also because in community, a shared mission means a shared burden. Doing life together with people in community means that we're on mission together, right? But it also means in the midst of doing life together that we share our burdens. Listen to what Solomon says in verse 10. He says, two are better than one. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them. In other words, Solomon says, imagine that you're traveling with someone and they fall down. It's a great thing when you can bend over and help pick them up and help them recover from this place of struggle because you you have a shared burden. You're doing life together. And part of what this means, if we're going to share burdens, this means that the pace of the person that you're doing life with now affects your pace, right? So the metaphor that he's using here is of two people on a journey. Now, if that person falls down, The traveling companion has to actually stop, turn, slow down their journey, and help this person. But doing life together in community means shared burdens. It means we are in this together. And I think along with this, this idea of doing life in community, it requires of us vulnerability. We have to be willing to invite people into our places of struggle and say, I'm not okay, I'm broken, I'm wounded here, I need someone to come alongside of me and help. Aaron Ralston that I talked about at the beginning of the message. He says this, he says, if you want someone to show up and help, if something bad happens, you'd better tell someone where you're going. Let me read that again. If you want someone to show up and help you, if something bad happens, you'd better tell someone where you're going. In other words, he's saying, invite people into that journey with you. How many times do we struggle with things and we don't want to be vulnerable with people and we find ourselves now in a really serious situation and we go, why isn't anyone here with me? Why won't anyone help me and reach out to me? But we haven't invited anyone into our journey and into our struggle along the way. We've tried to push through. We've tried to power on in our own strength. But community... Life intentionally in relationship with each other necessitates vulnerability, opening up our life and saying, you know what? I'm not okay here. I need help. And this is something I struggle with all the time. Just the simple reality of asking for help. I built bunk beds for our two oldest girls and the way that I designed them was like floating bunk beds. So I anchored them to the the studs on the wall and just had one support beam on the front. And and As I got ready to install the bunk beds, my uh, wife goes, well, are you gonna ask someone to come over and help? I said, no, I've got this. This is easy, right? No big deal. So I've got this frame that's built out of two by sixes and two by eights, so it's relatively heavy, and I, I carry it downstairs, and now I've gotta figure out how I'm gonna anchor it to the wall while I'm the only one holding it, right? So my genius plan is that I'll, I'll build two little cleats on the wall, two little shelves, and I'll rest the frame of the bed on there, I'll bounce it on my shoulder and I'll drill some screws in the wall, right? Easy, great plan. Except for as soon as I put the frame on there, one of the cleats fell off, right? So now I've got the frame of this bed on my shoulders and I'm just trying not to put a giant hole in the drywall, right? And my only thought is, ah, please don't let my wife see me like this, right? Because she's going to say, I told you so, right? I should have listened. And lo and behold, at that moment, she walks around the corner and she just goes, do you need some help? And I'm thinking, yeah, I need help right? So she fortunately came down and held the other, and I was able to get it anchored into the wall. But how many times do we just say, you know what? I've got this. I'm just going to do it. And we find ourselves in a bad situation because we weren't willing to invite anyone in. But doing life in community necessitates vulnerability of saying, you know what? I'm not okay. Can you come alongside me? Can you help me in this thing? I'm not self-sufficient. So why community? We're better together it brings meaning it means shared burdens and finally i think for solomon it means that we fight one another's battles with and for each other notice what he says in verse 12 he says the one may be overpowered two can defend themselves and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken so he imagines these again these two travelers on a road and in that time in that day and age if you were traveling between cities on a road and you were by yourself you were an easy target for robbers or thieves to take advantage of and so Solomon says one person by themselves he's going to be easily overpowered but he says if you're doing this journey together you have someone else that the two of you now can defend yourself and the idea here is that that we fight one another's battles with and for each other when we're living in community it means that when you see someone that is in your life that you're in a relationship with and they encounter a difficult place, it means that you show up, you take the initiative to say, hey, it looks like you're struggling here. Can I jump in? Can I help? I mean, imagine, imagine if these, these two travelers are, are going together on a road and one of them says, oh, you know, I've got to fix my sandal and you know, he's fixing his sandal and, he, well, you go on ahead. Right now suppose he looks down the road and he sees robbers jump out and attack his friend. Now, this person doesn't go, ooh, I'm, I'm going to sneak over here in the woods and hope they, don't, hope they don't see me. No, 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 Solomon says, these two guys, he says, you have someone to defend with you. And, and the idea here is that this other person that you're doing life with, they go, hey, I'm coming. I've got his back. I'm going to help. And the idea is that you fight one another's battles together. When you watch someone struggling, you go, hey, let me jump in. Let me fight with you and for you. Let's help one another out here. So community necessitates vulnerability, inviting people into our struggle. But I think community also necessitates taking the initiative when we see someone struggling to step alongside them and say, hey, what can I do? I don't, know what, I don't even know what to do, but I'm here to help. How, how, can I, how can I come alongside you? How can I be in this with you? Because when we're doing life in community for Solomon, he says, it's about fighting one another's battles with and for each other. So why community? We're better together. It brings meaning and deeper significance to life. It means shared burdens, and it means shared battles. So now is the question of how. How do we do community together? And here's where I've got homework for you. I know college students, it was just graduation weekend, but I've got one more assignment for you. I, I, want, I want you to read Ephesians 4 this week. And, and as you read Ephesians 4, I've listed several of them for you in, in the note guide. Paul starts to list all of these things that are part of what makes community really work and function well. And he talks about things like gentleness and kindness and forgiveness. And I want to challenge you to read Ephesians 4 this week and reflect on and and, and think about all of these components of community. What does it look like to, to just be gentle to one another? What does it look like to just be kind in the middle of doing community? What does it mean that in Ephesians 4, Paul says, forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. In other words, the kind of forgiveness that you see in community should resemble the forgiveness that Jesus has given us. So read Ephesians 4, reflect on what it is that Paul calls us to in the midst of making community life work. And ultimately it comes down to this, that we are empowered by God's grace through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just about saying, like, I'm going to be more intentional on my own. No, but it's about recognizing that the beauty of the truth of the gospel is that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our relationship with the Father is repaired. And in that, we are empowered to do relationship well in community with one another. So I I think it's fitting that we're going to take communion this morning. I think this is an appropriate response to this idea of community that it's the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus that empowers us to do community life well. And so what I want to challenge you with this morning is as we take communion, I want you to think about a relational place in your life where you're struggling. Maybe you struggle of, in your marriage of keeping that sort of score going, and you're saying, I'm trying to drop that competitive mindset and be compassionate, but I wrestle. As we take communion, invite God's grace into that place. Maybe you wrestle being vulnerable and you go, I want to, but I've been hurt before and I'm hesitant. I, I just don't want to put it out there. As we take communion this morning, invite God's grace into that place. Because in communion, it's not just a remembrance moment, but it's a place of tangibly encountering God's grace. So invite him into those places. As we take communion this morning, uh, each section, can, you can just make your way forward and receive the elements. Uh, in the balcony, you'll be served, so you can just wait until the ushers bring the elements to you. Uh, We just ask that you wait until everyone's received the elements and then we'll take them together as a community. If you do have a gluten intolerance, we have gluten-free bread, both up here and in the balcony. I'm going to pray for us and then feel free to make your way forward to come get the elements. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you for the example of Solomon as he calls us to intentional living in community. Father, I pray that you would help us to lay aside any sort of competitive mindset and step fully and faithfully into what it is to, to do life well, to share the burdens with other people, to fight battles with and for them, to, to be concerned about the well-being of one another in the midst of community. Father, we love you. And we're thankful for your grace that empowers this. And we're thankful for the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.